Emilio Ricardo Barrela looks back at the early days of Facebook and Twitter as his own version of journalism school. That was when he was honing the skills that would lead to him founding Latino Rebels, a digital news website that has become one of the top Latino media outlets in the world. Latino Rebels is now part of Futura Media Group, the highly acclaimed media nonprofit led by journalist and producer Maria Inojosa. In addition to being Futura's digital media director, Barrela is co-host with Inojosa of Futura's In the Thick podcast, a show that Barrela says is the people of color complement to Pod Save America. His work has been featured in several other major outlets, including The Guardian, ESPN, The New York Times, and MSNBC. Here's part one of our conversation. Julio Ricardo Varela, thanks so much for taking some time out of what I know is a very busy schedule. I for am you. so psyched to be on, like oh, an man. actual media show based in, <laughs> in like in the Boston area where I get to talk media. Come on, absolutely. <laughs> and you're one of the leaders in the field, so I'm so excited to have you here. You, uh, you're in a leadership position at Futura Media, and you play a major role at at least three of its media properties: Latino Rebels, In the Thick, Latino USA. Plus, you're doing other media and yeah. journalism stuff. So I appreciate your being here today. I want to start out by having you tell us about your path to the place you are now. You studied literature and history at Harvard. Yeah, Latin America. So yeah, how, yeah. Did, how did you wind up in journalism? It's so funny. Um, so I, I graduated from Harvard in 1990. I went to school in 86, and I joined the Harvard Crimson because I was really into journalism. I mean, I grew up in Puerto Rico and New York, and one of the best memories I ever had as a kid was reading the back of the Daily News sports page, Mike Lupica. Uh-huh, yep. And so Yankees fan you were at, at the time I was a Yankees <laughs> fan and we can, we can cross that later. But, um, so I would read it and I love the, I love the sports pages. Um, and I was, I read Lupica all the time and that was like, wow, I can do this. So when I came up to, to Cambridge in Boston, I joined the Harvard Crimson as a sports writer. I eventually became sports editor. And for any sports fan out there, it, I, I'm the only Harvard journalist that ever covered a national championship in the last like 90 years because Harvard hockey won right Harvard ice hockey won the men's national championship in 1989 and I was the cover story and it was a big dramatic win and I was in Minnesota and here I was 19 years old and that led me to this is this is like the analog time where you would bring your clips to an eye. Like I went to the Globe with my clips. Yeah. I I remember going and like pasting and cutting and pasting my. My story, Eddie Crayer scored the goal and Harvard won its first like real legit <laughs> national championship in a major sport ever. Yeah. Like I don't think about like the 20s and the 10s. <laughs> no, and, like, it doesn't this, count. Like it was ice hockey. It was Minnesota. Right. And here was this like Puerto Rican kid writing <laughs> about ice hockey. So I literally called up the Globe. Vince Doria at the time who, was, who went on to the national and ESPN um, I didn't know anything about an internship program. And I right. called up the Globe and I was like, hi, like a good reporter. Hi, I'm a, I just covered the Harvard hockey victory. Would love to see if I could talk a little bit about working in the summer. Mm. Can I bring my clips? And Vince Doria said, sure, come on in. So I wow. like, this is like, so it, that's amazing. But it, but it's, it's the point of like, you're writing, right. And I'm, you know, you're covering, it, it was of interest. Right. So I, I took advantage of that. I met him. And then he's like, oh, by the way, we have a summer program. And did you not know about that? And I'm like, no, I had no idea. <laughs> so he put me in the summer program and I became a contributing reporter for the Boston Globe, the sports department, which 
to be honest, was the greatest, like to me in the eighties and the nineties, it's like the pinnacle of writing in general. Absolutely. So, you know, I got to meet Lee Montville Mm -hmm. and Bob Ryan and Dan Shaughnessy, Peter Gammons, Peter Gammons. And like Bud Collins would come in and I'd be like with his, I was like, Oh my God. You were still at Harvard at that time. I was, I was a junior at Harvard and I got about 60 bylines for Mm. the Boston globe. Um, and I loved every minute of it. Mm. And, and that kind of, Kept, you know, I, I, I started branching out and doing other things, but I was, a, I started as a sports editor. It's, cool. Yeah. So that's, that's how I became. But then, but then I stopped journalism because then I, I, when I, when I graduated in Harvard, I went, I actually was like, oh, maybe the global hire me. And right. they're like, and then I learned a, a, a hard lesson about, you know, unions and, mm. uh, and staff. And why don't you go and cover other sports like in Iowa and or in other places and start off and I was like oh, I don't want to do that right and I had an opportunity to go to the Orlando Sentinel hmm. in 1990 because my dad you know we're from Puerto Rico I was born in right. Puerto Rico but my dad had moved to Orlando in 89 we were actually one of the first Puerto Rican families that moved oh, to Orlando right? like, oh. now people are like what like <laughs> like everyone's Puerto Rican in Orlando right now mm-hmm. but and I went to the Sentinel and they're like oh we like what you do why don't you um, come and check it out? And I was I was a little bit of like East Coast, like I can't live in Orlando in 1990. Right. And like there's no sports department here. Like not right. knowing that the Orlando Magic and Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway <laughs> would be like taking over the city. So right. I kind of went back to Cambridge and I kind of just hung out and I got into uh, textbook publishing. I got into editorial publishing because I knew Spanish and they were looking for Spanish right. language editors. And that was my career until, until probably like around my, my late thirties, early forties when, when the oh, recession wow. came yeah, and people weren't buying textbooks. And I, I was starting to get into digital media because right. the Harvard connection for people that don't know is like Facebook at the time mm-hmm. you would get the early invites if you had a harvard.edu email. Oh. So I was one of the first like, early adopters of Facebook outside oh, wow. of the college world. Okay. So I was there since like 2004, 2005, and I was like, oh, my God, this is really interesting. And I started looking at it. I started looking at social and digital media through the eyes of a journalist, gotcha. and it kind of got me back to going, hmm, this is interesting. I was at a career shift. I was like, where am I going to go with my career? Because, like, educational publishing was contracting. There was a lot of mergers and takeovers. Mm-hmm. Um, it was changing. People weren't buying textbooks anymore. Like people were kind of saying, oh, what are we going to do? So I kind of backed backed into journalism and media again, sort of like 10 years ago. Right. And I started, um, you know, I was an early Twitter adopter. I started mm-hmm. seeing that people were looking for information, reliable information online. And I was like, Oh, you can be like, this is just being a journalist. And I kind of started reporting on things and starting just. You mean reporting on Twitter? Yeah. Yeah. Like like one of the perfect examples, not to go back to sports, but the British (laughs) Open. Uh, I believe Tom Watson, who was a legend, like he made this last run. I think it was in 2007 or eight or maybe 2010. It was right before Twitter was like quote unquote, like becoming a major news source because Twitter is now becoming like, I think as a news outlet in a lot of ways. So I was just watching the British Open with my phone and I was tweeting about Tom Watson because I grew up playing golf in Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. and I lo- and I would just start well oh, Tom Watson's at 5 under and I got a reply on Twitter from some random dude who was like, "Hey, keep me posted. 
I'm at the airport and there's no cable TV and I'm a big Tom Watson fan. Thank you for these updates. Wow. And I was like, okay, now I get what, what social and digital media is all about. You're informing. And if you're doing reliable information, people see you as a trusted source and that sort of started building. Right. Right. And so, you know, blogging, tweeting, posting on Facebook, seeing, you know, connecting with people in your community. I started to see that this quote unquote new media is, was really just journalism with new tools, mm -hmm. which I think one of the things, and maybe it's because I, I was away from journalism for a long time that I didn't, I mean, I have a lot of friends in the business, you know, especially if you come from the Harvard Crimson, you know, friends of mine are like all over the place in major newspapers sure. and they were in media for like 20 years. I kind of left and came back. So mm -hmm. I guess I wasn't as cynical about the changing of media. <laughs> I saw it as like, wow, Twitter's super cool. Mm -hmm. I didn't see it as a threat. Facebook is amazing. And this was like, you know, this is before, like before it got all messed up with, right. you know, fake news and all. But at the time, there was a really interesting time, I'd say from about 2005 to about mm -hmm. 2011, where being a digital journalist was so cool. Right. Like it was like, you felt like you were doing things that no one else was doing yet. And, and you were kind of inventing it as you went along. Right. And the one thing that kept me going was always be a journalist. Mm -hmm. Like if you were able to to stay credible, your voice, people would trust you. And that to me was like really fascinating because I was at this career shift. I kind of was like, oh, what am I going to do with my life? And I started playing in this space and it almost became sort of my, my J school degree. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't go to J school, but I did by just being on Twitter, yeah. being on Facebook, being on YouTube and just, and just becoming that type of journalist and, and seeing that a lot of the things that I would write or blog about, like people were reading and then, then, you know, 2011, 2012 comes along. I'm like, Oh, I should, uh, there's something bigger here, right there. I, I'm, I've, I've struck a chord with the Latino community. There's something bigger. And that's what led me to to form Latino Rebels in 2011, where it was just a collective of digital voices to be like, we we need to change the narrative. Like the stereotypical view of Latinos in this country is being controlled by other people that aren't Latino. Mm -hmm. So the only, you know, and I can't, you know, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to make media more diverse. I'm not worried about diversifying newsrooms like because that fight is like a fight that is really hard. Right. I took the route of like, I know the power of digital media. I can create my own and I just need a lot of friends to help me out. So how did you actually start to collect everyone together and launch that thing? That must've been a lot of work. It was, it, people say it is a lot of work, but it, here's the thing. When you're, when you're establishing a community, like, like I said, when I, when you've been on Facebook since 2004 on Twitter, since like 2008, um, you start being attracted to people that believe in you, like believe in the things that you believe in mm. that are sharing the same commonalities. Like there was a, there was a growing sort of, I wouldn't say it's a subculture. It's more like, um, just a, a community of, of like-minded people who were kind of all committed to be like, there's a way to change the narrative of what it is to be Latino in this country. And we're going to change it. Right. And, and I started seeing that, my situation as a Puerto Rican man in the East Coast 
had a lot of similarities to a Latino woman or, you know, Mexican-American woman in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and or, you know, a, a Cuban-American woman in, in, in Florida or a Salvadoran man in, in Texas. And we all had these we all had grown up in the United States kind of feeling like we're not being represented. People aren't hearing our voices. So we all are kind of like isolated in the pre-digital world, mm. kind of feeling the same. But like one of the things that I always say is like, you know, I'm a big fan of like punk music, mm -hmm. like a Puerto Rican kid loves punk music, but I also yeah. love salsa. Right. Like those are my two worlds. Mm -hmm. And you start seeing that we all were growing up bilingually and biculturally in this world, yeah. but we weren't connecting. And digital connected us. And then we started going, hey, wait a minute. Um, we kind of have to we're not being portrayed in the way that we should be portrayed. Like, you know, it's, what can we do? And I just was like, Hey, um, we're all rebels. We're all Latino. Like that. <laughs> it, it came out of the fact I was watching the daily show one night and I saw John Stewart and I was like, wow, John Stewart's a rebel. John Stewart, John Stewart's a rebel. Not a lot of Latinos except for like Al Madrigal on the show. <laughs> um, Man, I just put like Latino. I literally wrote Latino rebels on a piece of paper. Like mm -hmm. after watching John Stewart, folded it up went to bed opened it up i'm like oh my god this is actually a pretty cool idea right so i i formed it i formed the url that day in 2011 i think it was like march or march or february mm -hmm. then i just like facebook message like people in my community be like hey i came up with this idea like maybe we should do something um there's no money right but i love you guys <laughs> <laughs> And they and I have to say that original group of people believed in it and they were like, Yeah, sure, let's do so and it was actually fun. Like we created a private Facebook group where we would kinda share stories with each other and it was kinda a little club. Right. And then we would write about them and then we'd be like, Hey, did you see what this person said? You see? And it was becoming like this it was like a, almost a virtual newsroom. Like we were yeah, pitching. You'd have editorial meetings on this Facebook yeah, group. Yeah, we yeah. We would we would have virtual pitch meetings. Interesting. Right. And then and then we would all write under like we 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 would collectively create these stories as a collective, right? And we would say, by Latino rebels. And people would be like, well, who's behind this? And I'm like, well, who's behind the editorial pages of the New York Times, mm. right? It's like, it, what's the difference? You know what I'm saying? It's like the bylines were, it wasn't about the byline. It was about the voice, right? Right. So we wanted to establish the voice. And I don't know what happened. It was one of those moments where like, to this day, I still get people who tell me, Thank you for giving me permission to speak out. Like people were seeking permission. I was like, we were like, let's create our own voice. And we hit it at the right time within, within a, an, uh, within a year I was on face and CBS face the nation wow. talking about the Latino vote, like mm -hmm. on a Google hangout with on television with John Dickerson and like two Republican, like a Republican person, a democratic person, Issey Morales, like the actor, uh, and I was like, I can't believe this. Like, I'm on Face the Nation. One of the biggest things I tell people that are young journalists is you don't have to wait anymore. You don't go into journalism to make money. Let's be honest, <laughs> right? Like, you don't go right. into media, you know, unless you're unless you're nationally seen. You do it because you want to tell stories and you, you feel like you want to impact things. The model now is very different. The model to me is you can create anything any day. You can tell a story any day, make it look amazing mm -hmm. and report or whatever you want to do, whether it's video, whether it's podcasting. Um, if you're authentic and real and true to yourself and you want to make the effort, right? 
um, you don't necessarily need to rely on big media to to get your voice across because now you can create your own community. It's a lot of hard work, but you also have like people that have done it for 10 years who are like, pitch me, like pitch me. Don't pitch, don't pitch like the Atlantic pitch me Yeah, because I can publish you tomorrow. And we have a voice, right? Like we have a community, we have a following. I'm so immensely proud of the fact that people have pitched me over, over the years. That's led to jobs. That's like, like I, I know people like they started writing for me, like their advice now, like mm-hmm. their advice, they're at places, um, at other outlets. I, I, someone was at HuffPost for a while. You, you know, this is like, I Buzzfeed, like people like call me and be like, Hey, do you know this contributor? And I'm like, yeah, you should hire that person. Mm-hmm. Like they wrote for me. So, so I, it is a flipping around. I also think a big problem in all this is that unless you have oodles and oodles and oodles of like venture capital money, um, you're not going to make money in mm. this. Like you have to like realize that, you know, Latino Rebels to me, yeah, it was a business, but it was a side hustle. So I kind of had to like figure out myself, like how do I sustain it while I also like raise two kids in yeah. Massachusetts. <laughs> and right. I kind of had to come to terms with that. And like I've put in a lot of hours, like I'm, I'm immensely blessed that over the course of seven years, people have come in and out of my life who are like, Hey, I believe in this. I want to help out. And I'm like, there's no money. And it's like, I don't care. And, but so we did, we started smaller. Like one of the things people are like, Oh, let's hire 80 reporters and look flashy. Like Latino rebel started small and kept the most important thing. I tell people is like the voice, right? Keep your voice real. Don't get caught up in the numbers games. Just be really, really true to yourself. And if this is what you want to do, like write, produce, edit, whatever you want to do, it's going to, it's a heavy lift. I'm not going to lie to you. It's, it's not like it's going to happen overnight. Right. But I'll give you this one example that happened. Like people are like, oh, how did you hit like 2011? We were, we were, um, we were online for a month and my, my, my little brother mm-hmm. went, was in Puerto Rico, Julian. He's not little anymore. He's like a 30, <laughs> but he was like in his twenties at the time. Julian, my little brother Julian, went to Puerto Rico. President Obama was was visiting, um, and he was walking past Old San Juan, and he saw like this, you know, independence protest against you know indep- people that want independence, Puerto Rico, who mm-hmm. are protesting you know U.S. imperialism, and you know, Obama is the imperialist, mm-hmm. and they were burning a U.S. flag, mm. and my little brother took out his phone and filmed it, like, and he texted it to me, and he's like, "Wow, this just happened." I'm like. Really? It's like, where were you? And it's like, yeah, no, I was here. Like, so I posted it on Latino Rebels YouTube and like this happened, you know, burning an American flag without anything. It was just like reporting it. Um, I mean, I'm not proud of the fact that Drudge picked it up, mm. <laughs> but they did. <laughs> right. Like Drudge, the Drudge Report, it was on the front page of Drudge Report for like, like half a day. And then all of a sudden, like we were on the map. Right. And we had haters come to us and, but it, but you know, sometimes your haters are your best like readers. Right. And so that just came from like my, my little brother sending me a text of Puerto Rican independence, yeah. like burning a flag. It led to so complex, you know, there's such a complex issue, mm-hmm. but, but that's my point. It's like, it's real. It happened. One of the things that, that is missing in this big conversation about media is the role of the editor. Mm-hmm. I think the editors are the people that understand what readers really want 
and understand what's going to resonate in the conversation. So I'm immensely proud of the fact that, you know, when people say like, how many pieces have you edited in the last seven years? I'm like, I don't know, like 7,000 maybe. Wow. <laughs> like, oh, man. But, but you start understanding like, what is it that is going to lead to discussion and conversation and engagement? Being an editor is just in this day and age, it's, it's, it's really sort of like the curator. Like I always think of an right. editor as a curator of a, a massive like art collection. Mm-hmm. And you want that art collection to be like the best art collection you can have and be true to yourself and like have a belief. And so I believe like editors are, are sort of like the saviors of digital news. Like if you have good editors, like news and media is going to thrive. Mm-hmm. Because it's so much, there's everyone, it's the whole thing. It's like everyone's doing everything, right? Right. So now you kind of have to need these arbiters of like what makes for credible content, what makes for content that's like very true to what you want to inform people with. And I, so I think we kind of underestimated that role of the editor. And sometimes when we talk mm-hmm. about newsrooms and, and you know, contraction and reporters, it's like a great editor is going to make a lot of people look really good. You know, I, uh, I love that point um, because it, it's huge. It's a there's so much information out there. Right. It's just a critical role that the editor plays. And I'm wondering actually how things might have changed since last month when Futura officially acquired. Yeah, uh, Futuro Media. My boss is now Maria yeah. Hinojosa. Congratulations. Thank you. So has that changed anything? Are you paying? Are you able to pay yes, writers now? It's in, in the, this is a great story because so people that don't know me. Um, I've been working at Futuro Media, which is Mariana Hosa's independent nonprofit company based in Harlem since late 2014. I started working um, on America by the Numbers, their PBS series, mm-hmm. um, on a you know as a freelancer, and then I I became their digital media director because they produce a show called NPR's Latino USA, which is the longest running. Latino affairs program in English. Yeah, it's great. In the United States, like on on radio. Like mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, we won Peabody's, you know, Mariana Hosa is a pioneer. Yeah. So right. I helped to craft their digital strategy because it was kind of like a transition where people were starting to move away from what they call terrestrial ra- radio, at least like younger people. And mm-hmm. they, you know, it was all about like podcasts, podcasts, and I'm getting my content in, in different ways. So I kind of played a role into kind of pushing that and also creating an editorial voice for Latino USA so that we weren't just an audio show. We were actually reporting on the 2016 election Mm -hmm. or what's going on in Latin America. And I'm immensely proud of the fact that we've been quoted in every major, you know, you name it, give me a a newspaper, give me a news outlet. And like Latino USA has been cited in that, the the, the Post, the Times, the Atlantic, like all the cream of the crop of of what I think is American media now. So, so that was kind of like my job. And so one of the stories I tell when I interviewed with Maria Hinojosa was so, you know, because I, I needed a job. Like I, I, you know, Latino rebels was losing money. Come on, like be real, like, like startups lose money. So anyone thinks like, you're going to make it. It's, it's, you really have to be persistent. But when I interviewed with her, she, she goes, well, um, I asked her, it's like, what do I do with Latino rebels? And she looks at me and she's like, what do you mean? It's like, well, should I dissolve it? She's like, you're an idiot if you do. Right. Like, I'm like, this is Marina Hosa. <laughs> like, like, I, I don't think I would hire you if you dissolved it. And I'm like, why? It's like, wow. it's a special place in our community. You need to figure out. He's like, it's cool that, you know, I, 
that's who you are. Mm -hmm. So you need to find a way to like figure out how to sustain it. But we still want to hire you. Like for me, it was like, whoa, like Mariana Hosa thinks I created something really cool. Right. Like to me, like I had to step back for a second because that's like journalists like yeah. approval. Talk about validation. Yeah, it's validation. So it almost like recharged me in a way that like, all right, I'm going to take what I've learned and help grow Futuro Media. And we have, we've grown our, you know, our digital audience for Latino USA's in, in the trip, you know, in the the three figures and mm -hmm. digital growth. It, it, we, we have these stories, we have contributors. I have a budget. I get to pay contributors. I just some great pitches. It's great. It's, it's such a great place. I, I love the fact that I get to just decide what we want to publish. Right. So that's, I have a great editor who like, who takes care of that now. And I'm kind of like, wow, we're growing. But then there was a part of me like about a year and a half ago where I was like, what about rebels? Especially like ever since the, President Trump got elected. Right. So I was like, what about Rebels? Because I was doing In the Thick. I mean, I do In the Thick podcast with Maria, which is, which I love. And, and that it's a was, great podcast. Which is a POC. You know, we were like the POC yeah. meet the press is what I say, right? <laughs> it's like your perfect POC compliment to Pod Save America. <laughs> right. That's what I tell people. Right. Um, so I was doing all this stuff and, and, and I would just, and I went back to my, Maria saying, you know, don't ever get rid of this. So I kind of started talking to Futuro. Like the great thing about Futuro is that it fosters journalists. It fosters, it's, it's, it's true. It's a nonprofit media company. So we're not in it to, to go and like, you know, we have to defeat the competition. They, they really believe in voices. So I started having the conversation with people in Futuro, with my Maria, with the board and other people to be like, what, what can we do differently? Like we should create our own community. And so we, we started talking a little bit about, oh, should we create a new thing? And then I kind of, then the conversation like, well, I already have a community that's seven years in the running or six years in the running at right. the time. Um, what do you guys feel about that? And it was one of those like moments was like, yeah, like there's a lot of cross pollination. Like it, it, we want to look at ways to, to grow in the digital space, especially like a, a, a site like Rebels, which, which has a very strong voice. So it led to like a lot of going back and forth and talking about it. And next thing you know, they're like, we're going to buy you out. We're going to acquire you. And I'm like, what? When I was growing it, I was like, what's the next story? What's the next story? And it's like, I'd be writing and editing at two in the morning. Right. And you're putting all those hours in. And now to have this validation of like, we think you're, you should be a permanent part of Futuro Media. So I know that's a very long answer to your very, <laughs> very simple question. Yes. Pitch us. We pay contributors. Excellent. We pay, we pay Latino USA, we pay Latino rebels, you know, if it's a good story that fits our audience, I would say like 99 out of hundred times, we will publish it. In the next episode of the media narrative, you'll hear Julio Ricardo Barrera talk about some of the big stories he's been tracking, including sexual misconduct allegations against Juno Diaz and the effect of Hurricane Maria. Let's listen now to a short clip from an In the Thick episode that came out just after the storm tore through Puerto Rico. The number you have reached is temporarily disconnected. This is a recording. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and welcome to a Latino USA podcast special about the aftermath of Hurricane Maria and its effects on Puerto Rico. 
we've asked Latino USA Digital Director and my co-host for our political podcast in the thick, Julio Ricardo Varela, to join me in the studio. Hey, Julio. Hey, Maria. So, Julio, one of the stories that you've been following and and one that is just very painful um, to hear is the conflicting reports about the death toll and very upsetting. But what can you update us on this? Okay, so the government's official numbers for over a week, they've been saying this for over a week, was that 16 people had died. 16 people certified. There's no way that the death toll here in Puerto Rico could be 16. It's impossible. The official number is 16. The death count is 16, has been 16 since the storm. But then on the evening of Tuesday, October 3rd, a couple of hours after President Trump had visited Puerto Rico, Governor Rosselló, Ricardo Rosselló, the governor of Puerto Rico, updated it to 34. But we know from journalists on the ground looking from videos people are sharing in social media, I'm getting personal texts from people and reporting from ourselves, that even that number seems low. Barela was on target with that analysis from an episode of In the Thick that came out in October 2017. Just a few days ago, in May 2018, a new Harvard study estimated that the hurricane death count may be closer to 5,000. Barela will tell us more about Puerto Rico in the second part of our conversation coming out next week. Take in more of his work at inthethick.org and latinorebels.com. You'll find show notes and links relating to our conversation at themedianarrative.com. This episode was recorded at The Village Works in Brookline, Massachusetts, and was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to The Media Narrative and write a review at Apple Podcasts or the iTunes Store. I'm Rob Hoschel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>